you have to own the S&P 500. They're the 500 arguably best and brightest companies in the United States, if not the world. And therefore, you're having slivers of ownership in those companies. So you'll be able to hopefully grow faster than inflation. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. And we all know that you know, we know that Wealthion's gone through a lot of changes recently. You've seen some new guests, you've seen some new hosts, and some of you have loved it, some of you haven't liked it as much. We're reading through all the comments, so we understand we're going through a lot of changes right now. And we've got another new thing to talk about today because this person will have their own show starting on the Wealthion channel coming up December 1st. Anthony Scaramucci is here. He's the founder and co-managing partner of Skybridge Capital. He's the author of four books. He also served briefly as White House Communications Director under, under President Trump. Under President Trump, I'll get that right. Hopefully this show of his will last longer than that stint in the White House. And we know, look, Anthony, some of you love him, some of you hate him, but he's here. He's going to be doing a live show. He's going to be taking people's calls, answering their questions. So Anthony, welcome to this show to talk about everything you're doing and what you're going to be doing going forward. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, first of all, thank you for that nice introduction. You could have mentioned that I got fired, Eric. Everybody knows that. And I love talking about it. So you can always bring that up. And congratulations to you uh, on your new gig as the new face of Wealthion. And uh, it's such an amazing, such an exciting story. And I'm thrilled that my uh, old colleague from uh, Goldman Sachs, Steve Stephen Feldman, invited me to come, come on and create some content with you. So thanks for having me. You know, when I was debating the intro, I was thinking, do we say the 11 days? Do we say that he was fired? But I don't want to say it in front of you because I'm trying to be a nice guy. So I, no, I appreciate you know, that you brought no, it up. No, 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 no. I, I like talking about it. I have, I have a new book coming out in April called From the White House to Wall Street and Back that talks about lots of my shortcomings, including that ominous and fateful firing. I also talk about the relationship that I had with Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, taking him to the Middle East. Uh, and what I discovered there. And so, yeah, no, I have no problem bringing this stuff up. I think it's also important for investors. You know, I uh, uh, mistakes that I've made in my life, Eric, have usually come from pride and ego. And so when we put our pride and ego into our decision-making, we sometimes make these ridiculous mistakes. And I think that's very true in investing. If we get emotionally wedded to something or uh, tied into something for different reasons other than the intrinsics, of the situation, uh, we can stay too long in an investment or not buy something out of spite, that sort of thing. Uh, and so I do like talking about this stuff. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I was in the White House for 11 days uh, or 954,000 seconds. Sometimes I say it that way to my therapist, it sort of makes me feel better. But it was a uh, it was a phenomenal learning experience. I learned a lot about the American government. Um, got to fly in Air Force One. I did a White House press conference. I read several intelligence briefings, which gives you an eye-opening look at what goes on in the geopolitical situation and strategically how the U.S. is positioned around the world. Uh, and like you, I love the country, and we're both products of this great uh, American experiment. Uh, both are living, in some aspects, the American dream. And one of the greatest things about Wealthion is to be able to bring people together to impart wisdom and ideas and objective analysis to help them uh, in their own aspirations in life, sort of create this sort of aspirational uh, wealth creation channel, if you will. We talk about the macro factors a lot on Wealthion, that wealth creation, that long-term view. 
But most people didn't get the opportunity to work in government, right? Most people are outside investors. They're looking at data points. They're thinking through, here's what I think the Fed might do. Here's what I think inflation might do. Having been a professional investor for decades and having had that experience in the government, but also knowing so many government figures, what's your perspective and what did you learn there on, here's what the Fed is thinking. Here's why a lot of us think that they're crazy, but here's their perspective. This is why they're making the decisions they make, or this is why Congress thinks they can spend their way you know, forever on trillions of dollars in debt. What's your perspective on the macro factors, given what you've learned? Well, listen, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And so I, I want to break it up into little chunks, if you don't mind. I think Please. the first thing I learned, which I think is an important thing, and it's a little scary to say it, but I, I'll share it with everybody, is the lack of knowledge that we have. It is not a Hollywood skit. It's not a screenplay written uh, to make a movie. Uh, the scoring on Bin Laden, the probability that he was actually into the house uh, was under 40% uh, when they first started talking about the attack. I think it reached 50 or 51% when they decided to actually go in for Bin Laden. Uh, and so I remember my first intelligence briefing thinking, wow, there's just so many things that we don't know. Uh, and the the briefing is about percentages, Eric, as, a, as opposed to real definition and clarity. And so that's also true about investing. We're taking a guesstimate of earnings or a guesstimate of the projection of a co company or the management skills and executing a company. And so that was learning lesson number one. Learning lesson number two, which directly applies to the Fed, they're in the same position. Sometimes as Monday morning quarterbacks, we look at them and say, oh, geez, why do they think this or why do they think that? Uh, but there they are with their skill set, lots of information and analysis, but not perfect information. And I'll just tell this story quickly. Uh, one of the Fed uh, economists said to me that the big miss during COVID were the number of hospital beds in China. And so when when Chairman Powell was out there talking about uh, you know non-secular inflation, I think he used the words transitory inflation, they were making the guess that the supply chain was going to recouple over a nine to 18 month period of time. But by missizing the hospital beds in China, uh, the Public Health and Safety Commission in China said, there's no way we're doing that. We're going to a zero COVID policy. We're going to stay in a lockdown position because we don't have the hospital beds to take care of the elderly who could potentially be infected by COVID. And we'd have this international crisis or scandal if we had our people dying on the streets or dying in their homes. And so um, that led to the supply chain staying decoupled or uncoupled for a much longer period of time. Again, the Fed making this decision, but getting a few things wrong, like the number of hospital beds in China, uh, and it causes us to have this move that we need to make to aggressively raise rates. Last thing, and then I'll then I'll uh, I'll take another question, but this is another relevance to, to investing. Um, you're in the American government and you have, and this is from a CIA analyst that gave me my first briefing, you have workhorses in the American government and you have show horses. And I remember this young intelligence analyst saying to me, Anthony, you're going to find out very quickly who the workhorses are and who the show horses. And so unfortunately, a lot of the show horses are in the Congress. And so the, the last point of your question is, do these guys really believe that they can spend forever? And the short answer to that is, I don't even think they think about that. 
I think what they think about is how am I going to get reelected over the next 24, 36 months, whatever their investment cycle is, and what do I have to do to overpromise my constituents uh, to get elected? And that usually means them spending money. And so they don't even think about the future the way you or I would. They're thinking about the present and the present is their survivability. So that just speaks to us having to think about changing incentives down in Washington to see if we can get them to behave in a way that would be better for our long-term success. So many good points here. The the three that you mentioned, the 40%, the example of, did they really have that information when they started that mission? There seem to be so many things right now that are 40%, like the transitory inflation. That was the famous word. Transitory inflation turned out to be dead wrong, right? Turned out to be, no, the inflation is still mm -hmm. here, right? We're still seeing the effects of it three and a half years later. We'll yeah. get into incentives on government in a second. What are the things that you're looking at data point wise that you see that the government seems to be missing or they seem to be dead wrong? What is the current regime's transitory equivalent of, guys, you're wrong and you need to change your policy because of it? Well, listen, it's 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 a really good question. And I'm not sure this is a great answer, but this is an observation I would make that the deflation is actually coming. And so we were prior to COVID in a period of disinflation slash deflation. And that usually happens when you're onboarding tremendous amounts of technology and you're onboarding lots of economic innovation. And so the blockchain is an example of that. Uh, AI is an example of that. Robotic technology, auto driving cars, uh, software that's improving the logistics for places like FedEx and uh, UPS. Uh, so the, the trucks are actually delivering more using less gas because at the beginning of the day, they have figured out using these logarithms and the arithmetic of placement of the boxes on the truck and the truck delivery route pursuant to the waste traffic on the delivery route. These are all things that we didn't have the capability of understanding 50 years ago. Uh, so all of this stuff is incrementally improving price and, and increasing quality. And so when you have that going on, uh, you, you typically go into a lower inflation or disinflationary environment, the induction of all that money, the stimulus money, the deficit spending, the lowering of rates to zero during COVID, we just flooded too much money into the system. So uh, I think the Fed is going to start cutting rates sooner than people think, even sooner than they think, uh, because they need to also get ahead of this disinflation. Uh, and I'll just be brief, but I want to explain this to people because uh, Anytime my mother asked me a question like this, I'm like, okay, I got to be able to explain it. My mother once said to me, well, what's wrong with deflation? If I go to the supermarket and the prices are lower, why is that bad for me? And I had to think about it. I said, Ma, well, it's not necessarily bad for you that day, but what happens in a society that has a tremendous amount of debt, when you have deflation, you have to pay the debt back with dollars that are worth less, sorry, excuse me, dollars that are worth more than the dollars you borrow. In an inflationary environment, if I borrow a million dollars and the, the dollar is getting cheaper, if you will, my salary is going up, I can pay the debt back with dollars that are worth less. But in a deflationary environment, I'm not able to do that. And the example I would give is, let's say the average American makes $70,000 a year and they have a $300,000 worth of debt. Well, if their salary is going down, because that's what happens in a deflationary environment, if they're making $35,000, their debt 
from their ability to manage it is actually doubled. And so the Fed has to be super worried about deflation. And I think we have another potential disinflation or deflationary environment coming because as that supply chain couples back up and the competition gets fierce again, uh, they're, they're going to have a potential issue there. And we we have to figure out a way to work through that and manage that. Because let me tell you, the last time we had a deflationary crisis was in the uh, early 1930s. Unemployment spiked to plus 20%. Our, uh, our GDP contracted. Our productivity went down 9%. And it was a brutal environment for Americans. But we've had so much inflation over the last couple of years that maybe, all right, a couple percent deflationary points, maybe that's okay because we have to reset massive inflation since since COVID. Listen, I agree. And by the way, if you are a if you're worried about the deficit, we had 8% inflation last year. Uh that's effectively erasing 8% of that of that debt. So so I'm clear with everybody, you know, and so and the government has to do that unfortunately. They have to monetize that debt because they actually can't pay it back. Uh and they've never paid it back. You know that. It go, goes that goes all the way back to the early times in the country. We never paid back the debt from World War One or World War II. We didn't pay back the Vietnam debt. What we try to do is we try to grow the economy, so it outpaces the production of debt, and we try to weaken the dollar so that we can pay the debt back with dollars that are worth less than the ones that we borrowed. What does that mean, though? If this is going to be the next hundred years, let's say the rest of everyone who's living today, the rest of our lives. It will continue to be inflationary. Government will continue to spend. Like we talked about earlier, congressmen are just trying to get through the next two years, so they'll keep over-promising. They'll keep spending more. Then then what does that mean? Is it just buy a bunch of buy a bunch of guns and gold and live in your basement, right? Like what, what does that mean for when people like your mother, when normal people ask you for advice, what are you telling them to do in a world that we're never going to pay that debt off? Well, okay, so listen, there's a group of our society that's going to do that. There's a bellwether case where, you know, Maybe own one gun, but not twenty of them in six months worth of many, many, you know, ready-made meals. Maybe you don't do that. But here's what I here's what I would say, and I, I need you to think about this because I can't predict the future. But what I'm decent at, and most people are decent at, is observing the past. And so I submit this to everybody listening. It's 1923, and I give you 150 thousand dollars of 1923 dollars, which is effectively giving you you know, a million and a half to $2 million a year to live on equivalent to 2023. But you have to live in 1923. This is before antibiotics. This is before streaming, the smartphone, uh, commercial aviation, all of the things that we're experiencing in the modern era. Uh, and so if I said to you, you can live on $150,000 of $2,023 or $150,000 of $1923, but you got to live in that era. The point I'm making, if you step back 100 years have passed, we've tacked on trillions of dollars of debt, but by and large, we've had massive improvement in wealth, massive improvement in living standards. The poor are better off today in, in 2023 than they were in 1923. And I believe that's going to be the case over the next 100 years. And what happens is, and this is why Buffett has been such a great investor, is we get bailed out by technology. We get bailed out by innovation. I sat in a classroom in the mid 80s. And my economics professor told me, hey, we're running out of oil. And there's people listening that will remember this. We used to call it peak oil theory. And I said, we're running out of oil. Oh yeah, but you know, by the year 
2010, 25 years from this date, oil will be $2,000 a barrel. There was a British historian in the 1840s. Uh, his name was Thomas Malthus. He said, oh, you know, we're going to starve. We're growing the population exponentially. We can only grow the food linearly. And so we're going to end up starving. Well, er every one of those gloom and doomers, they missed the innovation. Malthus, he missed the irrigation, genetically modified foods, fertilization, vertical farming. I could list all of the technological advancements in from the motorized tractor on up uh, that he missed. We have more people dying from obesity-related illnesses than we do from starvation. And the same is true for oil. We have figured out how to frack, drill, use satellite technology to find more oil. And, and so we can't look at the world linearly and worry about these things in a linear way because our technology and our economic innovation is going to advance exponentially. And I think it's it's very important for an investor to understand that. Uh, and if they can take that long-term perspective, weed out the pride, weed out the ego, weed out the short-termism and some of their emotionalism, uh, they can do quite well. Um, can, I, I, can I tell a quick story? Oh. It, it, it's it's uh, you know it doesn't reflect well on me, but I think it's an interesting story. Even so better, I, even those are the better stories. I I bought I bought I think twelve hundred dollars of Microsoft in my Goldman Sachs account in 1991. So I was working at Goldman Sachs at the time. Um, the founder of Wealthion, Steve Feldman, and I were in the real estate department. I actually got fired from Goldman and then rehired, which is another story unto itself. Uh, that your buddy Dan Calarusso helped me write in Goodbye Gordon Gecko, but I get rehired into the uh, the equities division, and so I'm now in the equities division. I buy twelve hundred dollars worth of Microsoft in my account in your PA I or in your work Gold account. Yeah, my yeah, you know, like my PA, yeah. my personal yeah. account at Goldman. I leave Goldman. Um, I I guess the address that Goldman had. Uh, I ended up getting divorced and. The statements kept either going to that address or they went into a black hole and I misplaced the account. 1991. About a year ago, I got contacted and the account shows up. There's $73,000 in the account. And so that is the dividends. And, and again, it, it's a $1,200 investment. But the point I'm making is I would have likely sold that Microsoft stock 10 times Certainly during the bomber flatlining years, I would have sold it, uh, but I didn't sell it. And what you learn, and there's a great article on the internet about this, you know, where at Charles Schwab, the best performing accounts are the dead people. And you know why the dead people are the best performing accounts? Are, they don't look at the accounts. <laughs> They're not firing in from the Ouija board to check the statement, you know. And there's an account that lay dormant that did better than any other investment in my portfolio due to the fact that I had just bought a high quality company. And even though it languished for probably a decade, uh, look at how well it's doing today. And it's just the point is you have to stay in things, be long-term, strain out the emotions. Uh, and sometimes your best move, your best decision is not make one. Ignore the noise, act like you're dead. Don't look at your portfolio every day. You know, I mean, I own a lot of crypto. I would be embarrassed to tell you how many times I go to CoinGecko and check the prices, okay? And I shouldn't be doing that. I should shut the machine off. Let's look at it in six months and make an evaluation then.
what are you most worried about then? So I think you've got a pretty optimistic state of you know point of view on the American economy, the American ingenuity, the nonlinear technology changes. What are, let's say, the two or three things that do give you the most concern? Well, the number one thing has to be the rising nationalism. And the, the number one thing has to be this uh, unfortunate specter of anti-Semitism that we're experiencing. Um, when you go back historically and you see the combination of those types of things, we usually get into general conflicts. And so unfortunately, as Buffett says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes, or maybe Twain said it and Buffett copied him. But we have periods of rising nationalism when our living population forgets the horror of a war. And so uh, Barbara Tuckman wrote a great book about this called The Guns of August, where she explained that we had roughly 100 years of peace after the Napoleonic Wars. Von, von Metternich, uh, at the the treaty that they created, um, they they created a balance of power, more or less, okay, which which lasted roughly 100 years. There were some, you know, small wars, skirmishes, battles, but by and large, there wasn't a continental war uh, for 100 years. But as the living memory of that war goes down, you saw this rising tide of nationalism, okay? Um, so you go from the Congress of Vienna to the Versailles Treaty, okay? A good treaty here lasts 100 years. We end up going to war due to this rising tide of nationalism. We get a bad treaty in Versailles, and we go back to war. Um, and after the blight of all that war, no one wants to go to war. So what do you think happens? We start unifying. European Economic Union. We get the post-World War II order of all these acronyms like the UN, the World Bank, the IMF. And that system is now fraying again because we've lost our wartime memory. And so this happens, unfortunately. And we don't really have the leadership in place right now to explain it to the people globally. And so you have a regional conflict or a potential proxy war in the Ukraine, another regional conflict, a potential proxy war in the Middle East, and these things, they sound like they're minor skirmishes until they're not. And going back to her book, Barbara Tuckman said that the great powers in Europe thought the First World War was going to last about three or four months, and they'd be out of it by Christmas. Four years later, 45 million dead, and in many respects, we're still fighting that war, if you think of some of the treaties around the world, particularly those in the Middle East. So I'm worried about that, because if we don't kill ourselves... Uh, we have a phenomenal, very bright future for the planet. You know, we're going to get a more sustainable energy process together. We're going to have better uh, biotechnology, better innovation. I sat in a uh, seminar 15 years ago. They told me that our GDP, healthcare deployment, is 20% of our GDP. And because of our aging population, it was going to go to 30 and this was going to cause a national crisis for our society. But the percentage went down. It went from 20 to 16. Why, Eric? Well, we're ending the era of chemotherapy, and we've started the advent of immunotherapy. We have our genome where we can customize medicine now, less side effects, greater efficacy. Uh, we developed the statin, which reduced the potentiality of heart conditions and so forth and so on. And so We've had better preventative medicine, better immunotherapy. We brought these numbers down. So we just got to not kill each other. We got to figure out a way to coexist with the Chinese and the uh, 
the existing uh, Chinese government. If we do those things well, uh, the future is very bright. Where do you to me think about it from an investment point of view? Then is it do you stay long S and P five hundred? Is it buy more gold? Is it crypto? Is it treasury bonds? Is it international investments? If you think on a macro point of view, where is the hedge trade? Well, I think you have to own all of that stuff. I think you have to. A responsible person has gold in their portfolio. I think eventually there'll be digital properties akin to gold, sort of digital gold that will be in a responsible portfolio. You have to own the S&P 500. They're the 500 arguably best and brightest companies in the United States, if not the world. And therefore, you're having slivers of ownership in those companies. So you'll be able to hopefully grow faster than inflation. Um, I recommend, depending on your age and having a sensible bond portfolio. I was in a I was in a client meeting uh, 30 years ago where this this uh, family had a bakery business and they sold the bakery to this grocer and they made $100 million. That was a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money today, but it was really a lot of money 30 years ago. I was sitting in the meeting with them and they said, we just want 100% bonds. And I can remember my old boss, Roy Zuckerberg, uh, who's 85 years young and still going strong, playing golf somewhere in Palm Beach. He looked at the client. He said, well, let me ask something. You, you collect those watches. And he said, yes, I do. He said, and you go to Sotheby's to buy those watches? And he said, yes, I do. He says, and you're outbidding your competitors now, right? Yes, I am. If you go to a 100% bond portfolio, you're not going to be able to compete with those people anymore because you need equity in the portfolio. You need to own fractional shares of people's businesses that are going to grow faster than the inflation or even the GDP, businesses like Amazon or Microsoft. If you don't do that, you're going to knock yourself out of the game. And it was this very persuasive case being made for not being too conservative. The flip side, you don't want to have too much in the equity markets at your age because you want some of this income and you want some defensibility. And of course, if there's a really big down market, Goldman's going to recommend you move some of those stock, that money in, in, in bonds into stocks to buy the weakness in the market. And uh, it's just a well thought out plan. It's a, it's, a, it's a really smart way of thinking of things. What are your current clients asking you about right now? The last couple of weeks, what's been the the main question, the main conversation topic that keeps coming up over and over again? So I would break it down into a couple of categories. Um, you know, you have the big seven or the magnificent seven, as they're called, these big tech companies that are doing wildly well, and they're carrying the S&P 500. So the big mother load question is, when are the other 493 stocks going to move and eventually catch up? And I think that the the answer to that is once the inflation cycle ebbs and once we start seeing interest rate cuts, you'll see that levitation. Interest rates are the physical gravity of financial assets. And as they, they come down, they'll lift the 493. Um, the second piece I think that comes up is the war and the concerns about the war and the fragility of the global order, the post-World War II order at this time, uh, and threats uh, not only from Russia, but the potentiality of a uh, of a regional war with uh, the Chinese over the island of Taiwan or the island of Formosa. Uh, the third thing I think that comes up is the election. Um, although it doesn't have as much significance as people think in their portfolios, they are worried about it and the outcome of the election. Elections do matter. We know that from the court. We know that from administrative law. We know that from the different things that politicians can do to change things. And so uh, people are worried about that. And I guess the fourth thing 
uh, that people are worried about or thinking about is uh, can they survive and thrive in their retirement years? Because you mentioned the big swath of inflation. Let me tell you, nothing hurts people more that are getting close to in retirement than inflation because it starts to eat away. I, I thought you said deflation was the problem a few minutes ago. No, no, no. But I, I'm, I'm responding to what you yeah. said, which, which is that we've had three years of heavy inflation and that's creating anxiety for current people. Right. So that would be the fourth thing people ask, contemporizing this. What are the things that people are asking me about right here? We just went through a big swath of inflation. They're worried that's going to persist and it's going to eat up their living standards as they retire. I'm not as worried about that. I actually think we're flipping into deflation and disinflation, but that is a current worry piece and something that people are asking about today. So how do you balance that? If inflation's got people worried, but then like you said, you explained your mom, deflation's also bad too. What What is the magic number? Is it that you know one to 2% inflationary number, just a little bit, but not too much? We agree too much inflation's bad. We know that deflation people are trying to avoid it, but it feels like we keep going back and forth and the Fed can't can't steer us right down a narrow path. Yeah, well, that, that's the irony. The Fed was doing a very good job of steering it and getting it right post-financial crisis. But COVID-19, unfortunately, there were just too many variables, right? It's like how Rumsfeld said, there are known knowns and then there, there are known unknowns and then there are unknown unknowns. And the unknown unknown was the lack of uh, hospital beds and how the Chinese government was going to respond to that in terms of reconnecting the supply chain. But but here's the cool thing about everything we're talking about, Eric. The crisis begets opportunity. And so when you go into a crisis like that, the United States is saying, okay, we need a little bit of onshoring. We had lots of offshoring. So now we need a little bit of onshoring. We need diversification away from China. We've moved factories into places like Thailand and Vietnam. And so what typically happens when you go through a crisis is you know the bone breaks and it gets reset stronger in the area of the break. And so, yeah, you know, we 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 have these issues. We're never going to 100% get it right. I do think that number of two to 3% is optimal for us. I think the Fed believes that. They have to have some inflation because they're running these massive debt. Okay, so if you have uh, massive deficit spending and you're picking up uh, uh, some inflation, I think that's important for us, unfortunately. I hate to say that, but I think that that's, that's true. It can't be too much, but the uh, the sort of uh, you know the mama bear position is two to three percent inflation. You were just in Singapore for the last couple of weeks. It's you know kept us delayed in terms yeah. of scheduling this. What did you learn there? What did you see? What did you do? Did it give you a different perspective coming back to the states on how you're thinking about investments right now? Well, first of all, Singapore is a miracle, and to put it into perspective, Singapore leaves the uh, the colonization of the United Kingdom in 1962, it has per capita GDP in 2019 dollars of about 5,000 per capita. On the other side of the globe, roughly at the same latitude, you know, slightly north of the equator is Jamaica. In 1962, it leaves the United Kingdom roughly the same time. It, it, it has $5,000 worth of, of GDP. One goes to 55,000, the other one goes to seven. Okay, so they're roughly have the same economic footprint, same geolocation in terms of its northern distance from the equator, 
but one society flourishes and the other one is sort of stagnated, this is all directly related to policy. So, so we know that there's good policy and bad policy, and we know that there's right and wrong. And I'd like to focus on right or wrong as opposed to left or right. And so Singapore is flourished because it's pro-business, low taxes, good infrastructure, and provides a platform of equal opportunity for people that are born uh, randomly, right? You didn't pick your parents. I didn't, I didn't pick my parents. I certainly didn't pick the location of my birth. And so if you're rich or poor in Singapore, uh, you're at the starting block of getting a good opportunity through your education and the healthcare. Uh, they're not about equal outcomes, right? And so that's good as well because it's very motivating for people. And so this is an incredibly rich environment for business and development. Uh, the Chinese government, through, I believe, some missteps as it related to the Chinese Communist Party and their view of the West, has pushed a lot of Western companies uh, to, to move into Singapore to make it its global headquarters. And so it's a leading private banking center. It's a leading technology center. Uh, and it's causing a lot of growth in that sort of southeast quadrant of Asia. Um, and I think the Chinese are responding to that now. That's why there's these peace overtures being made last week uh, with President Xi and President Biden. And I think they're trying to create a rapprochement and a softening. Uh, when I was in Singapore last week, I got a, a copy of the China Daily, which is the local paper in Beijing that's in English. And because I wanted to see how they were reporting state-owned paper, how are they reporting the visit to San Francisco, uh, she and Biden. And the back of the front section, Eric, was a diagram. It said 30 years of great economic allegiance and economic codependence. And it talked about all the great historical things that the U.S. and China did for each other over the 30 years. To me, that's the government telling its people it wants to create this rapprochement now with the Americans, but they created space for Singapore to flourish in. And a lot of those companies are not going to go back to mainland China. Um, but it's a beautiful place. Um, it's incredibly clean, low crime. Um, you know, I'm a New Yorker though. I mean, I don't want to get everybody wrong. You know, I, I like being here in New York. I like the grittiness of New York, but I am really impressed with the economic miracle of Singapore. So tell me, why did you decide you wanted to do a live call-in show? I don't know if we have a name yet. I know we're starting December 1st, coming up on a Friday here. Why did you decide, I need to start talking to random people who want to ask me questions and, and take on all comers? Well, you know, listen, I you, know, you mentioned my ill-fated career in the White House, but during that period of time, I had one opportunity where I was able to give a White House press conference. And I had about 45 or 50 minutes in front of the press corps who can be incredibly mean-spirited and vicious. And I, I did a 40-minute press conference with them. And I always thought, okay, uh, that's something I enjoy doing. I like the intellectual sparring. I like the tough questions. And also, I think as an investor, uh, when you do a call-in show, and this is probably one of my weaknesses, which I'm happy to admit to you, I'm a big sports talk radio listener. Why do I do that? Because I think these fans are incredibly smart. They're so passionately in love with their teams and they provide such insight and they'll pick up things about the game that happened yesterday or the night before that I didn't see myself. And so I want to do that in the investment realm uh, because I think there's just so many brilliant people out there uh, that are investing or focused on investing, or they could even be part-time investors, but have great insight. 
And if you do a call-in show, I find that you'll end up learning more from the callers than I can teach the callers, if you will. Despite my 35 years of experience on Wall Street, my ups and downs, my trials and tribulations as an entrepreneur, I'm I'm willing to bet that I'll learn more from the callers than the callers are going to learn from me. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm excited about it. And by the way, callers in general are going to be a lot nicer than the White House press corps, Eric. Everyone knows you for the conference. What's What are you looking forward to on the next one? Reminder of viewers, sort of when it is, where it is, if, if people are interested, what what can they follow? Well, SALT was like a mixtured uh, acronym, if you will. It stood for Skybridge Alternatives. And so the longhand version of the conference name was the Skybridge Alternatives Conference. We took the S from Skybridge and the ALT from Alternatives and called it SALT. Um, the first one was in 2009. The third one, uh, President George W. Bush attended, and he asked me, is this the strategic arms limitation talks? Now, of course, you had to be born in the 1960s or 70s to know that that was uh, peace treaty talks between the Russians and the Americans. I laughed. I said, no, I mean, that's a yesteryear thing. But our conference is a alternative thinking conference. We try to bring verticals in from a lot of different industries. So there could be a Hollywood sleeve or an entertainment sleeve, a military sleeve, an intelligence sleeve, macroeconomics, a couple of uh, wicked smart hedge fund billionaires, maybe a few CEOs from publicly traded companies. Um, and we blend those people together. And then we offer this uh, wide ranging capital introduction program for fund managers to the extent that they want to meet asset allocators. They can come to an event like SALT and we can marry those. Um, and it's been very successful. Thank God. We've run it for 15 years now. Uh, we've done the conference in Singapore four times. We did it in Tokyo once. We've done it in Abu Dhabi uh, twice. Uh, we've done it in Las Vegas 10 times, New York four times. And so we're spreading the love this year. We've already done one in Singapore. We're going to do one in February of 2024 in Abu Dhabi, another one in May in New York. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll do a SALT Wealthion conference sometime in 2024, where um, our viewers and listeners can uh, uh, get invited to that conference. We'll set up a format for them, and uh, maybe we'll even use the show to learn what they want to learn about. And we'll bring a, a whole realm of speakers to something like that and registered investment advisors that they can meet with, talk about wealth and strategic planning. But uh, these events have been great for me. I enjoy doing them. I get the opportunity to interview some some smart people. Um, the person that fired me from the White House, one of the more entertaining uh, interviews I had was with General John Kelly. Uh, he was the White House chief of staff. His first official act was to fire me on the 30th of July, uh, 31st of July, actually, 2017. And that was a brutal day for me. Um, but I made a commitment that him and I would end up as friends. And we have, we've We've done public speaking together. We've toured around together. But one of the funnier events at a Saul conference was me interviewing the man that fired me. And of course, I was like, John, I got tough questions. You can't fire me again, you know? And, uh, you know, point being is, you know, when you have something bad happen to you, you're better off leaning into it than running away from it or pretending it didn't happen. How did you become friends with him? What, how does that even happen? Well, you know, he fired me. We were sore at each other. Um, I think Trump really made him fire me. And I think so he was mad at me that I was taking it so personally. Unfortunately, that that does happen to you at times. And then I was getting lit up by late night comedians and the media. I mean, it was a really, if you're ever having a really bad day, Eric, you should give me a call and give you a pep talk. I mean, I got 
I got fired from the White House, blown out into Pennsylvania Avenue, skinned alive, and then rolled in margarita salt. Uh, and then I got lit up by late night comedians and Avery Cable News Pundit. So, um, and so I was sore at him, he was sore at me. Uh, but I also recognized that he was an American patriot. He's a, you know, I mean, he's a four-star general. He's a gold star family member. He lost his son in Iraq uh, during one of the battles there. Uh, U.S. Marine decorated uh, four decades of service to the United States. And so when he left the White House, I reached out to him. I asked him to go to lunch with me. And uh, I think he was reluctant to do it, but he decided to. And we had a three-hour lunch together. And then I invited him to the SALT conference. And now we've become very, per uh, very personal friends. And so Again, another lesson from my life, don't take things that personally. You know, the people that are firing you are also having a bad day. Even though you're on the wrong end of that stick, the firer is also having a bad day alongside of the fiery. Uh, and we became friends. And I think it's a big message to people. You don't have to be sore or have lifelong rifts or lifelong uh, grudges. Uh, and him and I become close. And he's, he's actually introduced me to Mark Esper, uh, the Secretary of Defense, and uh, General Mark Milley, who will be speaking at our May conference uh, in New York in 2024. So another 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 thing about that, you know, keep your relationships, don't burn bridges, and it'll it'll help you expand exponentially your network. How did you keep your head up high during that? You know, you're getting made fun of on late night TV. It's a national story. Yeah. How did you? Just say, you know what? I'm I'm gonna have thick enough skin here. Or I'm gonna just go out back in the world. What was that process like for you? Well, listen, I listen, I'm a human being. It was tough. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But I, I I guess what I would what I would say to you is I have five children. Uh, and I think it's very important for your children to see your ups and downs. I have a lot of rich friends who have decided they just want to show their children this 45 degree positive sloping up into the right angle. And I think that uh, that hurts the kids. They don't they don't have the space to fail. When you're living your life like that. And so if you show your kids your vulnerabilities or you have this sort of exposure and you're able to get through it, you know, your kids are seeing your actions. And I think your resiliency in a time like that uh, is reflective upon them. And hopefully it helps them with whatever vagaries happen in their life. But no, it was a tough period of time for me. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But, you know, I have a sense of humor. So when Colbert, when I was on the Colbert show, and uh, my PR person told me, don't go on that show. He's going to eviscerate you. I said, fine, I'm ready to go. I mean, I brought him a front stabbing knife from my steak restaurant, the Hunt and Fish Club. <laughs> of course, they made me put it in a box. They were afraid I was going to stab him on the air. But uh, of course, I wouldn't do that. I thought the guy was funny. He was taking cartoons out, these cells, these uh, these like profiles that he made of me. He signed one to my mother. And then he said to me, hey, did you think you were going to last a long time in the White House? I'm like, longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator. I don't think it was going to get blown out before the milk went bad. Um, and you got to lean into stuff and and, in, and enjoy the vagary and the ups and downs and the tribulations. You know, and I think people appreciate that. If you if you own it, people appreciate it. I think, I think, and it also, you know, it helps you as an investor too. You know, to tie it all back to investing, uh, make a mistake, own the mistake. You can cut your losses more quickly and you can be more confident in the future setup and you can learn from whatever the mistake was that you made. I appreciate it. So th this will be fun. So starting December 1st, 
You can catch you can catch Anthony's new show on the Wealthy on Channel. Are you, are you gonna Are you gonna call in, Eric? I hope you call in. I got to figure know? out what the process is going to be. You is can it, like disguise your voice and stuff like that. You're like, this is uh, calling into the Moot Show, and then you can ask me some ridiculous like, questions, like Jets and Giants fans. On of your, of course, I'll try to answer it. You know, which will make it even more interesting. I mean, I think you 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 answered all my questions today, but if I have more, I might have to sneak in. They haven't given me the phone number yet. Nine two Mooch is the phone number. It's a very hot phone number. <laughs> right, because a nine and a two equal eleven, you know, and that's a lucky number on dice. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, eleven always shows up for me. Eleven days in the White House. My son was born on April eleventh. It's a big number, big number for me. Hey, I'm excited about it, Eric. I, I look forward to teaming up with you on a lot of fun, wealthy on things. Congratulations on your new gig. I've been reading the comments. I I, I feel like a mini version of you from from uh, your July 2017 days. You know, so. <laughs> Yeah. Read out the more aggressive comments. Read out the more aggressive comments. I think I think people will enjoy that. You know, one of one of the funnest days for me post White House was reading mean tweets on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Okay. And there were some really nasty ones that they made me read. And you know, you have to you try to read that in a deadpan straight face. I, I'm impressed by anyone that does that. The, the do the mean tweets. I've seen the NBA mean tweets and the Hollywood ones. Uh, I didn't I didn't realize <laughs> that you had done it, but that that takes a a real, you know, a tough man, a thick skinned person who's like, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to do this and, and poke some fun at myself. Absolutely brutal. But listen, it's part of it. It's all part of it. You're going to be in media, television, or entrepreneur, you got to take your lumps. Well, it'll be fun. We'll see what, we'll see what happens here starting December 1st. Cause I'm sure some people are going to love it. We're going to get some stuff in between, uh, you know, with the new show. So this will be exciting. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me here today. Great to be on. Thanks, Eric. Starting December 1st, you can catch Anthony's new show. Speak up with Anthony Scaramucci right here on the Wealthy On channel every Friday. Everybody, thanks so much for watching. Go to WealthyOn.com to submit questions for Anthony's upcoming series. And look, I know a lot of you are listening to this and thinking maybe I need to get some financial help to figure out how you can invest in your future, your family's future. If you're already working with somebody you trust, that's excellent. Stick with them. They can help get your finances and investments on track. But if you're not sure if you have the right person, or if you don't have anybody at all helping you, you can certainly connect with us. Consider scheduling a consultation with a financial advisor that Wealthion endorses. This is completely no strings attached. You'll see the short form on Wealthion.com. It only takes a few seconds, and it's totally free to have these consultations. There is absolutely no commitment to work with these advisors. We provide this as a free public service. We're looking to help as many of you as possible. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Anthony and me, if you liked it, please Show your support, like the video, like the podcast, hit subscribe, forward, share. All of these things really help us get the word out there so more people can listen and enjoy. Thank you again for watching.